0: The rise of the internet in the 21st century has been accompanied by unprecedented levels of polarization, division and coercion. At the same time, democracies are being hit by a huge range of different and rapidly evolving hostile state activities. Not all of them have their origins in Russia, though clearly some do, and these saw a significant scaling up after the 2014 invasion of Donbas. Today I'm discussing these issues with Carl Miller, an experienced digital researcher, author, and international speaker. He is a partner and research director at Chasm Technology. We'll also be exploring the extraordinary technology and methodology behind BEAM, an initiative for defending information developed by Carl Miller and the team at Chasm Technology. Carl is also a visiting fellow at King's and an international speaker as well as author of the fascinating book, The Death of the Gods, The New Global Power Grab. And I highly recommend to the audience that they get themselves a copy of that. It's it's absolutely extraordinary. Carl is interested in how technology is changing society and politics. In 2012, he co-founded the first UK think tank institute dedicated to studying the digital world at Demos and has been its research director Ever since, he writes widely on tech and society, including for the Economist, Wired, New Statesman, the Sunday Times, Telegraph, and the Guardian. Welcome to Silicon Curtain Podcast. If you enjoy the material we create, then please do like and subscribe to help boost the popularity of our amazing speakers in YouTube. Carl, before we jump in, I have to say this is the second time I've had the privilege of speaking to you, Um, and that was right at the start of the the war last year um and since then beam has come out uh which uh you know reading the white paper on that seems to be an extraordinary technology um but let's jump in and could you describe for the audience what it is uh and something about the ev- evolution of it well jonathan uh that's a kind
1: introduction firstly thank you thank you very much and thanks for having me back on yes my, my second time here um and hi, hi to everyone listening to this. Um, so yes, Beam. Um, I've been relishing this interview, by the way, because it actually allows me to talk about the actual underlying method and tech for the work we do, which which is often actually stays in the background and is submerged, but it's vitally important in this kind of strange struggle we have over trying to protect our information spaces and therefore all the things that alarm them, including including our democracies. Um, so where to begin? Um let me let me begin with um let me go back kind of four or five years jonathan because that's actually the 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 amount of time that we've been kind of developing and and trying to trying to breathe life into beam um and and it began with us um kind of increasingly realizing that and this is of course way before the the invasion of ukraine and 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 um uh and and all the changes that brought but we were already realizing that information spaces were Um, for want of a better word being seen as um, venues for conflict Um, it was a flip that I think we'd increasingly seen happening in the militaries actually including our own including including liberal democratic militaries but it was extremely important that, that it wasn't that information was increasingly being conceived of by states not as a tool of war, but a theater of war, and therefore joining air, sea, land, and space as a kind of in a sense, a, a metaphorical space that conflict actually happens within. Um, back then, um, the reason I knew all this was because it was um happening within the tech giants. So I'd go over to Silicon Valley and I'd spend time with Twitter and I'd spend time with Facebook. Um and I, I began to realize and this is probably 2015, 16, that um uh the they were spinning up all these teams dozens hundreds even kind of the world's best data scientists um who were kind of fighting this invisible battle between between themselves and states um now it wasn't uh they didn't really see it as democracy being under threat they kind of rather cheerfully described it to me as spam so they just thought it was a kind of user experience issue uh which is a story entirely onto itself but that, that's where the kind of story, at least to me, begins. Um, and of course, Beam is not just me. It's a big team of people um, who've come at this from lots of different places and lots of different directions. But but to me, um, that's the starting point. Um, and the, and I guess the underlying idea was that, that I and my colleagues didn't want civic society and academia and, in general, public life to simply be a spectator in that kind of conflict. It was always going to be far more consequential and important than something which was just going to be um, uh, happening between autocratic states on the one side and tech giants on the other. So that beam was our attempt, I guess, to try and put everyone else um, into the frame as well. So to give them the capability to begin to actually detect and understand and then respond to the kinds of information threats, which at that point um, were going largely unnoticed, I think. Mm.
0: And it's interesting, isn't it, because you, you you haven't specifically singled out Russia because these threats come from all sorts of different directions. I'm fascinated with the idea that liberal democracies would be engaging in a form of information manipulation as well. I'll have to maybe unpack that a bit further. But was there a real shift from seeing information as a space where you perhaps capture hearts and minds to space what? where you actively change and manipulate people's thinking?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, firstly, let me let, let me um, be clear around uh, the, the kind of similarities and differences, I think, between liberal democratic states and autocratic states in this area that the, the, for sure, I mean, li, 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 liberal democratic states also see, I think, information as venues of war. Um, but I, I do not think that they will engage in that war in in anything like the same way as an autocratic state. And that the reason for that, I think, is that the limiting factors here are not technical. Um, they are illegal and they're reputational. Um, Information warfare, manipulating social media platforms, is trivially easy for a military to do. I mean, if any military who can build a tank can manipulate Facebook or Twitter, it's not expensive and it's not difficult. But um, very rightly, of course, here in the West and across liberal democracies around the world, we have quite strong, both legal injunctions, but also actually... um, uh conventions against militaries mucking around in information spaces and especially the press um and for that reason i think actually um liberal demo- democratic militaries have actually not known what their license to operate in those spaces is they they don't really have rules of engagement and for that reason i think they probably limit themselves really in what they actually do in a way that autocratic states of course don't mm-hmm. so Everyone, you know, so largely then everyone has been, you know, I think realising that these spaces are, um, are, are, are being contested, information spaces. But, but I think that largely liberal democracies have been on the defensive end of all of that, in my opinion.
0: And there's another interesting strategic difference, isn't there? I mean, Russia has, I believe, for quite a long period of time now, considered itself at war with us. We have barely been aware of that um so again being in a state of war or not being in a state of war probably influences how active militaries are going to be in this if you don't think you're at war with a country you're not necessarily going to be messing around with this stuff um whereas whereas russia does seem to feel that it's in some kind of they call it civilizational struggle but they feel they've been in a in a sort of struggle around spheres of influence um at least since 2014, probably quite a bit earlier, as if many of my speakers uh, you know, have, have suggested uh, that's the case. Um, one even suggested as early as 2003 um, for when things started to kick off. But I think it's very difficult to sort of identify. But certainly if you go back to that period, the techniques were less sophisticated.
1: That's right, and and you know, th- there's a series of I, I think like quite bulky and unsatisfying kind of concepts or phrases which you'll hear if you go to any of the conferences either, either um uh, kind of attended by military or or state figures or or, or researchers on this, you, you'll you kind of hear um concepts like the grey zone or kind of sub threshold conflict and um uh, uh, hybrid warfare kind of floating around, um, and I think they all I, I I don't really like any of them per se, um, but I think they all manage actually to touch on the kind of real kind of liminal nature of information warfare. It's this infuriatingly slippery thing that seems to sit right in the kind of interstitial gap between the different definitions, conventions, treaties, uh, broad understandings that we have around what conflict is or isn't, when it happens, when it stops, who does it and who doesn't do it. Um, And you're right. I think because of all of those things, we haven't really realised quite what it meant to have states in like, kind of really strategically contemplating information spaces as being something which they needed to fight within um, and to contest on. And that largely they were crucibles, I suppose, of geopolitical power now.
0: And, and another interesting aspect, isn't it, is is you know where does the um, purposeful manipulation, the strategic manipulation of information end, and where does the amplification uh, of those messages begin, which is more of a civilian problem, I guess. So one good example, of course, is around COVID, where there's a lot of conspiracy theory doing the rounds. Um, Some of it is almost certainly organic. You know, it it, it will pop up in different places. Different people will come up with those conspiracies and then amplify them. But there is also some evidence, isn't there, that some of the stories, some of the doubts, some of the conspiracies were potentially seeded uh, in a strategic fashion. And that must be very difficult from a technological point of view to try and build up a picture of what is an organic threat and what is a... A hybrid threat, in that sense.
1: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you're absolutely right, Jonathan. In like that's that one of a a thicket of um, empirical and methodological struggles that we have as researchers trying to shine any kind of light on these areas at all. Um, and that's really why kind of beam came into being. So it, it it's it, firstly it, it it kind of tries to deal with information threats in the round. Um, exactly because we saw that they were linked in ways which were sometimes obvious to us and sometimes less obvious, but but equally important. And so it's not just looking at disinformation per se, it's also looking at kind of platform manipulation and other forms of kind of sub-content ways in which um, people will um, try and um, massage and manipulate information environments, which I actually personally feel... Uh, tend to be actually much more important, really, actually, than the propagation of the, the content itself. Attention is a far more important resource online than than simply spamming some untruths around. Um, but then also extremism, um, uh, radicalization, conspiracy, harmful conspiracy theories, um, harassment, hate. Um, these are all now concepts which kind of jostle around with each other. You know, sometimes arising organically, um, and sometimes not. Uh, and often doing so um side by side um in ways which are really unclear and um trying to separate all of that and actually begin to attribute it and then begin to turn that into meaningful responses
0: that's really what what beams trying to do where does this start because you know having um having worked on sort of tools that do sort of semantic analysis for marketing one could say it's not so far away from propaganda. Um, it's <laughs> it's it's I mean one, it's very complicated uh, and it's very data intense, and of course, there's things like Google, Bigquery, and so on which which helps to sort of leverage uh, the processing power of of you know larger systems than we have, let's say on site. But what I found when developing tools and is that you'll start off and you'll imagine it you know it's going to be this and it's going to do that. But as you go through the development process, your understanding of what's possible and what isn't, and in fact, your conception of what that tool can do or should do changes. So I'd love to know those sort of generational changes um, Mm. from when you started out to where you're at now. Mm. Well, it's extremely multi-led. And by the way, I should say at the
1: outset that this has been a joint undertaking all the way through between basically a bunch of us at Chasm who tend to be um, kind of either data geeks or 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 um technology developers and the institute of strategic dialogue who are subject matter experts around especially counter extremism and and counter disinformation and and from twenty fifteen onwards, really we've been working kind of together project after project um bringing kind of Beam quite iteratively into existence now yeah, you it's it's really multi-layered though. Um and in short, and I don't want to uh belabor this point, but it goes all the way from fundamental technology development all the way through to big coalitions, relationships, and 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 um and uh and kind of working groups and and co- coordinated um responses. Are the most in- fundamental layer? We actually began uh we, we founded chasm because um and, and apologies to anyone from um, the kind of social listening world but but i really um c- couldn't use those platforms to answer the kinds of questions as a think tanker i was being asked by government so this is around this is early this is 20 2012 um we were being asked and wanted to know about things like radicalization and when that happened online and hate speech how much of it happens and 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 basically social listening dashboards um which were used in marketing and advertising just were were um uh, incapable really of of answering those questions so we began to build our own response really which is the opposite to all of that called method 52 um it it basically allows um, subject matter experts to build pipelines to collect and, and manage um, social media data and analyse it in ways that they want. Um, and very, very important there is the use of natural language processing, a kind of the building of algorithms to make sense of very large data sets. So that allowed, that gave us a kind of capacity to be much more flexible in how we were doing the research and, and the data that we we're collecting, and then the kind of way that we would actually analyse it. And then from 2015 onwards, we, we used Method 52 with, with the ISD to, 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 to really build out what BEAM became. Um, and um, it, it basically took the form of a whole series of um, analytical pathways that, that investigators and analysts would use to really pull apart um, what they thought might be um, disinformation campaigns um, or other kinds of information threats trying to understand what these narratives were, how they differ from each other, the accounts underlying them, how accounts across different platforms might be linked, whether there were signs of inauthentic behavior, who the audiences were that might be being targeted, what effects all of this might be having on the audiences, all of that kind of thing. Um, And then finally, to begin to push all of that into the kinds of organizations that actually can respond. it's fine having data geeks and researchers um, pulling apart these kinds of things, but, but we, we kind of quickly realized that this wasn't going to be something which is, which is purely obviously a kind of research driven endeavor. This has to be something which we're responding to. And that means, and really this is the power of civic society. We can respond to it in ways which are far more powerful actually than the tech giants. Um, And, and, and connecting the outputs of being, to increasingly larger coalitions of organisations. That's been something us and ISD have been trying to do over the last couple of years, to to really try and scale up the kind of responses which we can have.
0: Because ultimately, you're not just providing reports for a single government department or whatever. You know, you have multiple clients, I would assume, and you have different projects, different objectives. And of course, some of your visualisations of that data uh, work incredibly well in the media as well. So you can't just sort of crunch some numbers and, pass them to some sort of you know bean counters in a in an office in whitehall you have to be far more um touchy-feely dare i say with the the sort of product that you create well there's there's nothing there's nothing wrong with sometimes passing research uh
1: into government of course uh and we're um all auto regulators you know we're proud of that bit of our work because government and regulators are, are a part of the response as well um but but, of course, and I think actually a really good example of this is is the brilliant work that ISD is has, has done um, uh, to uh, kind of uh, coordinate the Coalition against climate disinformation. So um, that's bringing together dozens and dozens of climate action charities and um, corporate responsibility and transparency activists and so on all around. Basically, the disinformation and manipulation that that, that uh, might be happening around um, cl- uh, climate action discussions around the world, and especially centering on the on the COP summits each year. So it started in COP twenty six, went on to COP twenty seven, and over that time, basically the organisations that are involved that are um, not only actually um, receiving our output from us, but are actually being onboarded onto the technology. Uh, and beginning to create whatever outputs they themselves that they want um has grown um, enormously in a way which is really pleasing to see and i think actually that kind of coalitional response that is a future of of this kind of work for civic society you know where you have organizations that each have a different reason perhaps for being worried about disinformation in a in a, in a broad area um, have different levers at their disposal and will pull them in different ways everything from long-term strategic advocacy, policy change, legal change, all the way through to much more tactical responsive media work, um disclosure to the platforms, liaison with 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 government uh, and other public sector bodies and so on.
0: And if we come back to um method fifty two which I mean that that could be an extraordinary science fiction novel or something that's a that's a great name there for x-files. but, If you're trying to look at a a particular narrative and you you suspect a narrative that's originated in a certain account or set of accounts um, is a a weaponization of information, how does the system actually do that? Do you have to look far more holistically at the history of behavior of that account and associated accounts? How far back in time do you have to go? I'm fascinated in really how much data uh, and how much you have to project back in time into that ecosystem where that data came from um, in order to understand whether it's weaponized uh, narrative or not. Mm. Well, thanks, Jonathan. Great question. And yeah,
1: no, a wonderful. A th- thanks for prodding me to go deeper into the actual methodology here. Um, so beam and method and and therefore method 52 basically have um, two different modes, um, which we typically um, will will jump between. um Firstly, we'll use it in a a kind of much more general kind of monitoring way. Um, And that's where we're either monitoring a space, forms of language, typically we'll deploy beam around a specific event or a specific worry. So either an election or something like a cop summit or or sometimes a kind of longer standing theme that we think might be being attacked or say activists um, uh, or journalists that we think are being targeted. And there we'll typically establish a kind of, constantly running kind of collection and analysis loop um the key machinery there is and i've I've mentioned this already and i kind of shied away from wanting to go deeper because i'm afraid it sounds too technical but it's called bespoke natural language processing and the the point is basically to train um, machines to make the kinds of decisions which humans do around the way we use language so that might be training algorithms to detect certain kinds of narratives that we think are um worrying. it might be that we are um simply trying to split a discussion into lots of different topics or themes, latent uses of language, calls to action, um uh, violence, harassment, threats, hate speech, whatever it is. um and then um and then basically watch how that changes over time. Now, when big changes happen there in ways that we're worried about or think are important, that kind of triggers this second mode of beam. And that's when we actually much more iteratively begin to pull these things apart. So say there's been lots of harassment flooding towards journalists that are, say, writing about greenwashing. Well, there, it's much more case-specific, um, but typically we'll be looking at that activity. And then there is normally a kind of workflow that goes from very large amounts of data into increasingly smaller amounts of data as it becomes increasingly more investigatory. So we might realise there's certain kinds of harassment, and we'll be using algorithms to analyse hundreds of thousands of messages and really isolate some of the harassment, um, feel that might be a trend. And at that point, you're big that, that kind of workflow is beginning to morph into much more open source intelligence work. So you're as you winnow it down, you begin to become less an algorithm crafter uh, and more a kind of data journalist, where you might see a particular lead. Oh, isn't it interesting these accounts were created at the same time, or that they are, seem to coordinate in the people they attack, um, or they seem to be sharing links from a particular telegram group. It really can be a whole host of different signals, you know, that, that anyone that works in this area kind of gets a gets a sense of as a lead. Um, and then will increasingly become kind of narrow, and narrow, more and more focused as as open source intelligence um, uh, and uh, and and kind of online investigators um, and ethnographers, of course, so people that really understand the particular online sub communities that tend to do these kinds mm-hmm. of activities, they become involved. And that's actually where us and ISD collaborate, and where I find that collaboration to be well. There's, I mean, it's it's fruitful in so many ways, but that's one of the brilliant interactions that we have where you know uh, on the one hand you need people that are interested in algorithms and 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 uh, emerging and powerful data scientific um capability on the other you need people that know about um how to dig into certain kinds of online phenomena and and one of the really difficult things about this whole work is how you join
0: all those things up together because they really don't sit in the same heads and the same people and I guess what you do with that information is the other one. I mean, you can you can try and make people aware of it, but I guess that's very expensive and difficult to 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 publicize the findings in that way. Or you can share them with experts at the conference. To, I guess to try and make people aware that there's this targeting going on, that there's a concerted effort to undermine uh, messaging there. Maybe if journalists are aware of that campaign, they might mis- not misreport um, some of those public concerns, as we know the reporting methodology with the the two sides methodology um, can very easily be weaponized um, where you have, you know, 95% of scientists saying something and you've got some rather exciting voices over here, you know, 1% or whatever, 5% saying something radically different. Mm -hmm. Um, It's easy to weaponize that, uh, that process. Um, But uh, how, how do you then sort of, um, activate the information and 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 make it impactful when you know you're sure your findings are are robust
1: well actually so uh, another good question jonathan and, and actually responding to all of this is is an important part of beamers is, is anything to do with the technology or algorithms or or data science or method 52 um and yeah i mean that's an area where and um, we're having to basically work out build and evaluate responses which go beyond um simply knowing that it is there and making that public um and that might be everything from um you know um uh, divining and 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 consolidating big strategic trends that we want to feed into policy making you know processes and and whitehall machinery Um, it might be um uh, disclosing the information and working with communities that are closest to the communities that are being targeted as possible um, to kind of um, uh, build resilience. It might be that we um, work with strategic communication um, organizations and actually kind of either counter message um, uh, the, uh, the information, uh, all the narratives involved. Sometimes, of course, we will we, we also um, try and talk to the platforms um, about the trends that we're seeing. Um, and if they're um, especially harmful, uh, and the accounts are propagating messages in ways which are in contravention of um, platform policies, uh, we'll want those platforms and uh, we want those accounts taken down. Um, that is an area though where um probably more creativity is needed across the board than anywhere else here. Um, you know, we we're we're kind of in this moment now where disinformation especially has has turned from a reasonably narrow specialist topic that think tankers were worried about, as it was two or three years ago, into something which seems to be happening everywhere to everyone and where everyone's becoming involved. And one of the things that that one of the good things that that brings us is that we now have more organizations trying to respond to disinformation than we've ever had before. And what we really need to do is work out the whole kind of spectrum of different responses, which might actually be powerful um and to um be of course ruthlessly empirical uh in which of those work and which of those don't but basically to try many more things than i think we're currently trying that might actually make a
0: difference and that of course is only going to get worse i mean this is something we we touched on in the first interview and it's um uh you know it it reveals a sort of um let's say a penchant for sci-fi that i've got but um you know we're we're not far away from the possibility of uh machine learning algorithms being told this is the narrative we want to propagate here are 500 personas now go off and and rewrite this narrative um you know in the voice of all these personas so the automation of this process uh in in incoming gonna say years possibly even months um means that the scale of disinformation could well grow to extraordinary proportions and then you combine that with deep fake imagery deep fake video it uh, becomes uh, quite worrying right and and
1: uh, will kind of in a way grow closer to us i think and, and actually the 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 trend that i am personally most worried about is 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 the way in which um um nlp and virtual agents um can be used to create quite long-standing persona that, that might actually develop friendships and longer lasting relationships with us um you know influence happens through people that we know uh and that we respect and trust um that's why the kind of spamming of kind of uh, kind of disinformation narratives into the ether in and of themselves is not likely to have a huge impact and is actually not particularly worrying but imagine that there are all these presences online which will talk to you will will listen to you about what day you've had will allow you to vent or to gripe um and will talk to and will will tell you about their day imagine growing those kinds of relationships over time tens of thousands of them with with all these different people in say targeted in a in a targeted community that would create the kind of social links the trust and the long standing kind of kinship the influence will flow through. Um, and, uh, all, you know, there are many technology trends which are happening around us, around our ears at the moment, but that, the, the ability for, to, for machines to sound more and more convincingly like human beings is definitely one of the most powerful, important, and I would say dangerous. Um, so, I, I yeah, the, I mean, I, I suppose the under, the underlying kind of other reason for us trying to work... of frenetically as we can here is is this suspicion that that the actual tradecraft for influence operations is likely to become more powerful like the the trends that we see in technology are likely to um uh kind of allow these kind of um the manipulation of information to um ever more successfully sink hooks into our psychologies and to who we think we are and how we think so um we we really do need to defend these information spaces in 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 ways which are robust because mm. um even if they're not affecting you now um in the future i think they will
0: mm. oh one of the things that that um you know people get a, especially uh well uh, the topic of ukraine has unite a lot of people on different sides of the political spectrum so actually people listening to this podcast will be from the, the complete spectrum uh, i mean quite literally from brexit maga all the way to uh what would be termed you know um uh quite left-wing so we have lots and lots of people united in in a common concern and, and united in the understanding that, that russia's an aggressor so it's quite a delicate topic though and sometimes if i stray into uh what has been called uh trump derangement syndrome one of my uh kind listeners has accused me of that um I tried to measure what I say and, and be much more empirical. But it's a difficult question, isn't it? Because, you know, one of the arguments here is going to be, well, you know, um, you call it weaponized information. I call it bias. You revile Fox News. Well, I despise CNN because quite clearly you have editorial bias in every form of media. How do you tell that difference between what is, you know, bias or a slant on the news, or a an editorial choice to go with one kind of angle, and actual intentional disinformation on the other. Well, and um, the, the first step I think is actually to get
1: rid of the term disinformation. Um, the 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 the, the kind of the lies that are being told aren't useful, usefully identifiable the kind of content level. They're about search engine manipulation. Um, They're about the creation of false identities and false persona. They're about the use of malicious scripting and automation. You know, there is a tradecraft here. um, And um, the propagation of disinformation is is only one part of that. And I don't think really an important part. When you actually pull these campaigns apart, you know, very often they're really not much to do with truth claims at all. They're to do with making you um, angry about feeling that your identity is under threat. Um, they're to do with activating a sense of injustice and outrage in you. They're to do with emotionality much more than they are to do with um, uh, truth and falsehood. Disinformation, I really think, is an extremely poor frame um, to understand all of this through. And I, I it, on the one hand, I try not to do it, but I'll use use it. But on the other, hand, it's almost impossible not to because it's it's simply it's kind of descended from fake news, I think, actually, is that's the reason why. Um, It's it's become such a widespread kind of label to understand all these various things. But no, the problem, at least in my view, is that there is a tradecraft being both developed and deployed by sophisticated actors, information warfare professionals on behalf of political campaigns, on behalf of autocratic states, sometimes disaffected individuals to very kind of systematically change how you think. In ways which are covert and undeclared. Now, whether you are supportive of Trump or or hate Trump, whether you watch Fox or CNN, I think all of us can probably agree that we don't want kind of hidden campaigns um, secretly hacking our political opinions. I I like to think there is still enough, just enough commonality um, amongst different political tribes to want there to be. Um, some basic ground rules around how information swells around us, um, and how arguments are made and, and which arguments are seen. Um, and actually, uh, information warfare operators from Russia or China or Latin American countries or the Philippines or so many other parts of the world now, you know, they don't want that to be fair. In fact, they want all of that to be um massaged and manipulated in their interests. So um I, I've never seen what we do as being a partisan intervention of any
0: kind. Um, I really don't think it is. And that's I think that's what makes it especially interesting, and, and for me as well. It's analysing the methodology rather than the individual narrative that could be labelled leftist or rightist. It's looking at the actual system or technology as the 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 Russian propagandists would call it it's the political technology of how you actually hack people's brains um what you then do with it I guess is the question where we're going to come on to but first of all I think you said something absolutely fascinating there which is that everybody gets hooked on the narrative on the message and they miss the point I think as you say of what is trying to be achieved here, which is to hack your emotions first of all. Then whatever message they want or whatever action they want can be imprinted upon you, but they have to hack you emotionally at a deeper level. And I think um, if you go back to the research Pavlov did with the dogs, again, we're back to Russia. <laughs> I think uh, all this psychological manipulation did originate there, and it's no wonder the Bolsheviks actually funded an institute for Pavlov to continuous experimentation. But I think one of the key things he found, which was then leveraged by uh, you know the KGB, was that if you can get people into a state of terror, if you can get them into a state whereby, as you say, their identity is undermined, but beyond that, you know, um, their whole idea of the world. Uh, get them into an emotional state um, where they feel utterly threatened. You can then imprint all sorts of ideas, and the human brain will take ideas and it'll soak them up like a sponge when it's in that kind of manipulated state. And that seems to me what you're talking about here. Um, the, this methodology is far more about uh, hacking emotions before you imprint uh, messages
1: right and actually um one, even more profoundly not just emotions but i think belonging uh, and identity too um you know really the kind of what is happening is that um kind of these tradecrafts are being used to help propel forwards entire movements and 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 uh, and communities um that are uh, kind of utterly militated against kind of mainstream ways that kind of claims are being validated in the first place and and either and, and evidence either proved to be right or wrong I mean this disinformation or, or or information warfare is far more to do with the creation of cults than it is to do with the propagation of lies um you know and uh kind of you know it, it, it one thing you really do realize is that um is that these kind of alternative worlds that have been built have entirely parallel structures of kind of epistemology, as in the creation and 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 validation of truth claims? They have their own investigators, they have their own researchers, they have their own journals, they have their own outlets. Um, you know, we and and I really think that um, the whole kind of machinery of mainstream news journalism, academia, and politics is hopelessly compromised you know, riven through with whatever, you know, in, in, insert, you know, insert gripe, corporate interests or wokeness or whatever it is. Um, that's the big tectonic shift is the creation of those movements. Um, and that they're, they're being created not by often lying to people and getting to change their minds, but by activating people's sense of identity threat people's sense of enemy or or listlessness or, or 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 feeling like they have no meaning in in you know in the world um and then and then um stepping into that um void with a real sense of community identity and meaning um very similar to radicalization processes actually i mean very very similar in 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 who is um, often lured in and targeted uh and and really what that uh, the kind of meaning that that can bring to the people that are then indoctrinated, um, but no, I, I, yeah, I, I absolutely. I think this is a a social and cultural phenomenon first, and a kind of rational and intellectual phenomenon uh, second.
0: And that brings the question that uh, I mean, you said that it's a relatively cheap. Uh, methodology to manipulate information. Nonetheless, it's not cost-free and to do it at the kind of scale that Russia certainly engages in and potentially China too. I mean, we're talking tens if not hundreds of millions of pounds a year, billions over, if not billions, um, you know, no one's exactly sure. Um, To invest that kind of money, you must want some kind of dividend. So people who engage in this manipulation, do you get a sense of what the what the win is for them? Well, I mean, let's remind
1: ourselves first that, that uh, you know a couple of hundred million uh, kind of dollars a year for a military is a couple of fighter planes. Like these, those aren't particularly large budgets. So, and and to be honest, I I, I honestly think that kind of information maneuver by autocratic states is has always been somewhat of a rounding error in terms of their military budgets. I I don't think it's a hugely resource-intensive thing for them to do. Um, uh but i mean and also just just as another sidebar um it's uh one of the other interesting trends we've seen over say the last year and a half or so is is really the profusion of um kind of private sector uh kind of versions of this trade craft um, i mean they've always been there but but it's become much much more copious uh and and available over over um the last um uh yeah kind of year and a half or so um can they measure whether this really works um, probably not. I mean, we can't. Um, a question I, I'm asked very, very often is, you know, how do we, how can we really tell whether any of this is um, really making an impact? And I, you know, I, at least as far as I I know, um, it's, it's you know, I mean, it's, it's very difficult. If you go into a digital marketing kind of uh, a kind of campaign in the middle of a general election and ask um, the campaigners there whether they can really know whether any particular um part of the campaign is really effective i mean i don't think they can i mean they try their best retrospective at the end but during you know in the, in the midst of the melee they're just firing out really whatever they can and they they know that the the voters on the other side are being bombarded by stuff from all over the place, you know, we live in an extremely noisy world. And which of those particular bits of information maybe got them to change their ma- mind? Maybe got them to 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 donate or or to or to uh, volunteer their time. I often think we don't know which bit of information really got us to change our mind in that particular way. And and certainly, again, when we're dealing with um, how we feel, really, rather than what we think, I think that process becomes even murkier to us all.
0: And certainly not in real time. I mean, in the kind of time span you're looking at in an election, you're looking at something on the scale of weeks. Whereas, you know, if I'm running a digital marketing campaign, I'll often tell clients, well, we're going to need a couple of months worth of data to actually understand even partially what's going on here. And it's the same with the learning algorithms that say Google deploys to mm -hmm. fine tune your campaigns they require weeks upon weeks worth of data before you can see any kind of uptick in in or improvement so I guess you're faced with that challenge or the the disinformation um, machine has that challenge that you you can't really analyze impact in real time you just have to throw it out there and uh, try and understand what's worked in the past and repeat the same
1: yeah and it's also the way that that you know, this tradecraft kind of really emphasises being like spliced into existing um, uh, social trends and, and cleavages. You know, it, it doesn't create conspiracy theorists, it amplifies them. You know, it doesn't create political extremism, it uses it. You know, it, 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 in, you know political polarisation is a long-term trend, you know, stemming all the way back to the 90s, that is just a very useful thing. For information warfare to to exploit all of these things would exist anyway you know and so the kind of and this is of course like one of both the fantastically interesting but also very warring and infuriating aspects of research in this area the interaction between organic inorganic between um uh, between um societal trends which are which are which are true and those which have been interacted with in some way is extremely murky and difficult. and often, you know, genuinely probably uh, impossible for us to completely tease apart.
0: Mm. and and of course, the, the other challenge with um if we look at uh, you know the audience and what the disinformer is trying to achieve, um it might not be a concrete action. You know they might not want actual action on behalf of their audience they might actually want the opposite they might want indifference and apathy they might want to sow doubt and despair um so you you probably you know you probably can't measure any of those qualities um as in the case of belarus all you can say is did they have a maidan and a revolution was it successful no it wasn't well probably these actions in aggregate were successful overall but but not just difficult, but impossible to measure, I would guess.
1: Yeah. Or sometimes it might not even be a broad populational outcome that's intended at all. It might be just that the political decision makers feel under slightly greater pressure, or um, that um they 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 think that um the kind of prospects of the next mayoral election might be a little dimmer if they, you know, if they condemn Russia too much. I think there's all kinds of um ways in which information environments can can cause outcomes i think um and we probably kind of we probably kind of assumed perhaps too much that that broad populational shifts is what's is what's intended here but no i mean it, it might well be that a very narrow group of very extreme entirely unrepresentative but extremely noisy and galvanized individuals become a little more emboldened you know and that that might be the real effect
0: and in that respect, I mean, can this technology—and I think you've you sort of answered that earlier—but can this technology explicitly not just help with better governance and intelligence and military decisions, but actually can it help in um, you know reinforce uh, civic society? Can it help improve the quality of journalism, which in itself um, is is a positive?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it really is to civic society that BEAM Beam was created. So the, the whole the whole um, vision really was to put um, uh, civic societal actors, journalists, um, a- academics, uh, and of course, kind of NGOs and charities kind of as much as possible into the driving seat. Um, and I I should say, by the way, and I, I've neglected to say this up to now, the other thing that j- just... we we were very convinced of, I think, when when Beam was created, was that there was a kind of enormous over-focus of research and work really happening around information threats to Western Europe and America. Uh, And we really wanted um, to be able to create something which could um, kind of engage with and and speak to the, the most underserved parts of the world, languages and communities. Um, which again, like everything to do in this uh, area is multi-layered. So has everything to do, you know, it begins with the technology, you know, um, being able to, you know, we, we always lean towards technology, which we could use in any language that we wanted to. Um, we've kind of deployed Beam, I, I, I think, in around 12 languages, you know, Dvahy and Arabic and Mandarin and Vietnamese and Russian, you know, as well as as uh, as well as English and, and, and European languages. Um, but it goes all the way up to the coalitions and the partners that we use Beam for, and the and the deployments that we make Beam to do. You know, from kind of sexual reproductive rights activists in Kenya, you know, through to um, uh, through to um, kind of information warfare hitting Singapore, and Malaysia. So, you know, and I think that that's probably also I would say, along with the kind of growth of coalitions in this area, is the is the other great big kind of shift or trend that I think we really need to propel forwards now um actually the the bits of the world that are um not being served at the moment enough by this work are actually the bits of the world that probably are being hit more uh, and might be more vulnerable um and of course information spaces as well that that are being overlooked you know we've over we've overfocused a lot on twitter and facebook we need to do a lot more research on
0: wikipedia and telegram is a whole other can of worms isn't it and Telegrams are unbelievably important now, yes,
1: uh, and, and in many ways is a kind of connective tissue um, between uh, lots of other platforms and the manoeuvre that happens on them.
0: Well, you've, you've you've answered one of the questions I was going to ask, which was you know one of the challenging things of any technology is making it multilingual and making the algorithms effective in multiple languages. So you've got you've got that one nailed, and also this idea that actually you know a lot of Russian. Uh, again, I'll use the term disinformation, but a lot of Russian narratives, weaponized narratives, um, are not so effective. Certainly in alliance countries, uh, and and you know to a greater or lesser extent within Europe. So, of course, a lot of those have been focusing on, say, the global South, India, and so on. So, as you say, especially important because those other areas are both the target for you know economic objectives of uh, China and Russia to an extent. But also, you know, their markets for military hardware and their markets uh, or their countries that that fit potentially within a sphere of influence. That you know, say Russia is trying to increase its influence in in, in Africa, uh, and 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 some other places to try and counterbalance the influence of the US. So there's all this sort of stuff going on. Vital that your technology um, works not just for the Western alliance.
1: Yeah, I mean exactly right. I I couldn't agree more. Um, You know, both influence campaigns and geopolitical fissures are happening outside of the English language, (laughs) Uh, and we need uh, we really need to uh, uh, of of course build capability and the relationships and the deployments that simply recognises that.
0: And uh, my last question really is where next with it? Obviously, it's been a long time in development. Um, There's lots of sort of very tangible uh sort of data sets and insights you've created now uh going into these conferences and in the media um what's what is the next area of development and what what's the next couple of years look like for for beam well personally i want to scale
1: it really and and find ways of um deploying it to not dozens but 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 probably hundreds of different information contexts around the world um one of the things that I, i think makes me more worried about information warfare than anything else is just how malleable and versatile an idea it is. I mean, the same basic idea that information is, is a theater of war, of course can change the way that a presidential election looks and how it must be secured, but also local elections, you know, also pressure on judges, you know, pressure on local officials, officials, harassment of um, local investigative journalists or crime reporters. Um, uh the the way in which um kind of activists can be pursued from one country to the next um you know and and of course the themes that are being targeted too so from big elections and political conversations into stuff like climate change and 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 uh and uh, sexual rights you know and it will ever it will just continue to spread i think and continue to become kind of more ubiquitous so one of the things I would really like to do, and this is not, by the way, a, 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 a solved problem at all, but is work out how we can connect more and more people up um, uh, and work with them, um, both in receiving and helping us make the detections that we do make, but then, of course, you know, in, in these large coalitions, which um, I think lots of people could be feeding into and lots of people can be um, acting from, Um, in in kind of acting in much more concerted strategic ways to solve this problem. Um, The problem is strategic, like our response also has to be strategic, it has to be very long term, it has to be, um, uh, it has to be cross sectoral, uh, and has to involve just an almost dizzying number of different kinds of organisation. So in many ways, really, that's not a technological, technical or empirical challenge, that's really an organisational one. Uh, and I, I would say that that's probably where what I think the great where the greatest pressure, but also the greatest kind of potential for
0: um, for growth uh, and and development really is at the moment. Because you have to get social media platforms, you have to get media owners, publications, journalists, governments. There's a lot of people to kind of guess get on side to actually leverage uh, you know the benefits of your findings and insights.
1: Yes. And, you you know, you you need think tanks and researchers and NGOs, you know, and th- th- these are organizations that typically are much smaller, of course, than like very large tech companies or obviously governments um, or militaries. Um, you know, they tend to have kind of um, specialist uh, uh, kind of um, concentrations of knowledge. Some are really good at speaking to the organizations that are being or the people that are being targeted. Others know more about the people doing the targeting. All of that is a is 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 something that has to be knitted together into a um uh into a kind of responsive um, apparatus in a way for um for for responding to information threats um very difficult but um but I think at least over the last couple of years um, what has been gratifying is is the kind of I guess the range of recognition now that that this is a really kind of um, existential cross societal kind of problem. And in many ways, it just interacts with all the other problems that we have. You know, we climate action becomes much more difficult when you when you pursue climate activists and you, um, you know, uh, propagate greenwashing narratives and you um, uh, and you deny uh, online spaces um, for respectful, democratic discussion around uh, what climate action should look like. Yeah, you know, I just copy and paste that same idea across all the other, you know,
0: immensely important decisions that we need to make as a as a species, and and that's the problem. It's very very confusing and very messy. Well, I've to say, Carl, it's been absolutely fascinating taking this sort of second dive in and reading about Beam. Uh, I'll put a link in there to the site so people can sort of check that out. Uh, and if there are any sort of key publications. Uh, that you think would be useful to share, we can put those into the video description as well. But I want to say a huge thank you for your time again, and for the incredible work you and your team are doing. Thanks, Jonathan. Really nice to speak to you again. And, and thanks for listening for everyone.